Will you join with me in prayer, please? Father, in, in your mercy now, we'd ask that you'd use these, these minutes in your word to protect us from the legacy of that beautiful but horrible song, A Life Without Love. Pray that the, the cause of the love of Christ would be advanced in our lives, in our families, um, towards our neighbors, and even the nations because of your word and what, the effect it will have on us today. Have mercy on us, Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a company called H.B. Maynard and Company, and they were founded about 70 years ago by a former Westinghouse employee who had a knack for making manufacturers more efficient. And they do efficiency studies focusing on wasted motion where employees do uh, repetitious tasks and their efficiency is important. And so they have developed the five S's. Sort and remove, shine and inspect, set locations and visual cues, systematize and stay the course. And if you follow those five things, you'll become more efficient. Um, But not everybody's real happy about being more efficient. Uh, One of the consultants tells a story of conversation he had with a pharmacist who belittled the recommendation to tape signs on the counter where office supplies had to be placed. The pharmacist says, you know it's insulting for you to label where my stapler should go. And the consultant explained to him that that stapler was used more than a thousand times a day. And if 25% of the times in the hundreds of stores Um, that stapler, if even 25% of the time that stapler was misplaced in the hundreds of stores they had in this particular chain, it would cost that chain hundreds of thousands of dollars in a year. It's because the stapler was misplaced. That's called um, wasted motion, stuff where you're spending your time doing things that's unproductive, and it's really costly uh, to the business. So what what we're going to do this morning, we're going to think about wasted motion as it applies to the church. And I'm going to need some help from you to kind of start thinking about that. We're going to apply this to what we do best, okay? So I need to know what you think North Wake does best. Just shout it out. I'll put it on the board here for us to think about. What's North Wake do best? Really? Okay, worship. There's one. We do worship. Corporate worship. We do that. Okay, Music? Okay. I'm sorry? Study. We study. Discipleship. Maybe small groups especially. Okay. We serve. And wait, wait, I heard one over here. Could you stand and yell that loudly so everyone could hear, please? Yes. Let's see. Preaching. Good. Okay, we're done. Um, Now we're going to think about wasted motion as it regards uh, these things and other things that our church is good at. Um, So what if I told you 
that it was all wasted motion. That everything that is written rather incoherently on that board was all wasted motion. Not that there was wasted motion in all those things, but all of those things were wasted motion in the eyes of God. Because there is a thing that if not present in all of those things will render even our best things wasted motion in the eyes of God. And the Apostle Paul tells us that that thing which must be present in all of those things to redeem them before God is that thing called love. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, our text for today, he says, I speak, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says without love, it's all wasted motion. It's worthless in the eyes of God. If you think about this, these are sobering words. Because it's entirely possible that what we are best at, what we work hardest at, what we excel at, is just wasted motion, a big zero in the eyes of God. Could it be that on certain Sundays, maybe even many Sundays, what you hear is a sermon, but what God hears is a clanging cymbal? I'm not excited about that prospect. See, any true follower of Christ looks forward to words of commendation from God. That, well done, good and faithful servant. Not words of disappointment where God says, it's just wasted motion. It's just noise. That first verse Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. Tongues of men could refer to just that. Something perhaps like what happened in the book of Acts, where people spoke when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke a language they'd never learned, maybe never heard, in order to declare the truth of God to the people there. Tongues of angels could mean just that, the ability to speak the language that the angels speak. Um, But clearly, Paul is saying that whether you speak languages you've never learned or the language that angels speak, if you don't have love, it's all just noise to God. All this amazing talk in languages unlearned, angelic languages even. This spiritual gift that the Corinthians most prized perhaps the one they most excelled at. It's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal to God, which is really annoying. Now, cymbals were actually used, um, historians tell us, prominently in pagan worship in the day. So it's entirely possible that Paul is saying something more here 
um, that he's saying that if you worship without love, it's just like pagan worship to God. It's not just annoying. It's offensive. And so in, in the second verse, he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He says, if I, have, if I can prophesy, if I can speak the truth of God in this extraordinary way, um, which around the corner in chapter 14 is so highly esteemed by Paul as valuable for the church in Corinth that he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. But here he says, it's worthless without love. It's wasted motion without love. He says, um, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and these again are gifts that the Corinthians valued. He says, if I have all faith, not just your everyday faith, but mountain-moving kind of faith. He says, even that, it's nothing. It's a zero if I don't have love. Paul here is telling us that if you have all the gifts the most useful ones, the most spectacular ones, but you don't have love for one another, it's just wasted motion. It's just noise. He says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Even great sacrifice, the greatest acts of suffering and philanthropy, nothing. Nothing. means nothing to God. On December 9th, 2010, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook guy, they all signed a promise they call the Gates-Buffett Giving Pledge, in which they promised to donate to charity at least half of their wealth over time and invited others among the wealthy to donate 50% or more of their wealth to charity. These guys have wealth. Warren Buffett, to date, has donated $30.7 billion, with a B, dollars to charity. But if he loves not, it's a $30.7 billion zero. Even if he gave it all away, every penny of his estimated $47 billion of resources, God will not be pleased with it unless it's an expression of love. As long as we're talking about the apex of philanthropy, Mr. T from the A-team and Rocky III turned motivational speaker Donated all of his gold to charity. Um, hey, but if it's not motivated by love, it was all for naught. Pity the fool, right? <laughs> so today we take that offering, right? You write a $32,000 check to pay for that children's space we need, just to pay for it all. And you write in the memo, you say, for the CM space, to be named the Sam Williams Children's Ministry trailer, okay? 
Or you, 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 you know, you know it's coming in October, and so you think, no, I'm just going to put a check in for $1.2 million to pay off that building that we're in, so they'll stop with the annual capital campaign already. Just stop it. It's annoying. Every year. If those are your motivations, have a legacy. Stop the annoying capital campaign. Big zero. God is disinterested, if not displeased. Now, it's important to notice the idea is not to stop giving. The idea is to become more loving so that our giving pleases God. The idea is not to stop using our spiritual gifts. The idea is to become more loving so that the deployment of our gifts pleases God. Because if there is a thing that is absolutely indispensable to the practice of our faith, a sine qua non, it's love. It's the indispensable thing. I love the way Francis Schaeffer put it. He says, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if anyone feels that it is his calling, but there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his ministry, Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb, and the ascension, knowing that he's about to leave, and Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. As Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He says this passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one era or in one locality, but in all times and all places until Jesus returns. And he points out that it's a command. It's not an option, but it's a command with a condition attached. He says there's an if involved. If you obey, you will wear the badge. But since this is a command, it can be violated. The point is, he says, that it's possible to be a Christian without showing the mark, but if we expect non-Christians to know that we are Christians, we must show the mark. We must love as Christ has loved us. Love matters always, supremely. It is the sine qua non. It is the mark of a Christian. We must show the mark. See, this is what it means to be spiritual. The Corinthians thought it was about the gifts. That's what meant you were really spiritual. Paul says it's not about the gifts, at least not the gifts apart from love. It's about love. Love is what matters most. It's the essential ingredient in the use of our gifts and the giving of our money and the sacrifice of our time or even our bodies that determines whether or not those things honor and please the Father. Love 
is the mark. Love is supreme. Now next week, we'll look at verses 4 through 7, and we'll talk about the shape this love is to take in our lives. But I want you to drop down to verses 8 and following with me at this point, where Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Love is so invaluable, so essential, in part because it is so prevailing. Love never fails. It never ends. It endures forever. It will never cease. Really, never cease. These great gifts of the Spirit that help build up the church, like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, they will all end. They are good and noble and useful now, but there will come a time when they're all going to cease. Now, much is made. There's a lot of head scratching trying to figure out why Paul said, and you pick it up even in our English translations, why prophecies pass away and knowledge passes away, but tongues ceases. Different expression there. And some have suggested that what Paul's trying to tell us is that tongues were going to pass away in a different fashion, maybe even in the first century, and that's why they're not around anymore. And um, that's, I just want to make sure you know that's not Paul's point here. Probably not Paul's theology in light of chapter 14. His point is, there is coming a time when these imperfect gifts will no longer be, need, be needed. Both the gift Paul puts forward is so essential for the church, prophecy, and the gifts the Corinthians loved, tongues and knowledge, they will all cease when the perfect comes. And the perfect, the perfect is probably a reference to Christ returning. Some have said it's, it's when the Bible was completed as the perfect revelation of God. I doubt the Corinthians would have figured that out. I doubt that's what Paul's saying. I think he's referring to the return of Christ with that reference. When the perfect, who is Christ, comes, these gifts are going to cease. They will no longer be needed to build up the church because the church will be built up, will be matured and perfected. But love will persevere. Love will endure. Love will continue throughout all eternity. Knowledge and prophecy are partial Incomplete glimpses of God's glory in the present. They will be supplanted with firsthand personal knowledge when we see him face to face. And that's the imagery Paul goes to now. He says in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul's making the same point again, using different analogies. As a child grows up, he says, childish behavior ceases. Use the gifts now to build up the church. There will come a day when they cease. Use a mirror, but there's going to come a day when that won't be needed because we'll see face-to-face, he says. Gordon Fee says, in our own culture, the metaphor would be the difference between seeing a photograph and seeing someone in person. As good as a picture is, it's just not the real thing. So, 
Imagine if you had a picture in your wallet of someone you loved who had gone off to war, but they had been lost in that war, taken captive, missing in action for months, maybe even years, and you have that picture wadded up, folded up, wrinkled in your wallet, and every day, maybe many times a day, you take that picture out and you look at that picture, and you cherish that picture. But then there comes a day when the one you love, whom you thought you had lost, is returned to you and they stand in your doorway and you run to them and you hold them and you weep with them and you laugh with them and you touch them and you talk with them and the picture falls down to the floor and it doesn't matter anymore because now you see face to face. Use the picture now, but there will come a day when it's no longer needed. Use the gifts now, but there will come a day when they will no longer be needed. We will see face to face and know fully, even as we are fully known by God himself. But even then, Paul says, and this is his point, even then, love continues. Love endures forever. It never ends. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These, these three virtues endure forever above the gifts. They follow us into eternity. And love is elevated as the greatest of the three. And you can, you can get a sense of why Paul might say that if you look back just a couple verses. In verse 2 where he talks about faith, he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Faith is redeemed by love. Faith needs love to please God. Down in verse 7, he'll say, uh, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love births hope. It fuels hope. So in Paul's thinking, in this context, he's saying love is the greatest. Richard McBrien says, if love is the soul of Christian existence, it must be at the heart of every other Christian virtue. Thus, for example, justice without love is legalism. Faith without love is ideology. Hope without love is self-centeredness. Forgiveness without love is self-abasement. Fortitude without love is recklessness. Generosity without love is extravagance. Care without love is mere duty. Fidelity without love is servitude. Every virtue is an expression of love. No virtue is really a virtue unless it's permeated or informed by love. Paul says love's the greatest. And he's writing here mostly, principally, about horizontal love, the way we love each other. But these things are all tangled up together. It's inseparably bound up in our vertical love with our love for God. The love for God, or the love God has for us, fuels our love for Him, which finds its best expression in our love for one another. So our love for God is revealed in the way we love one another. That's why 1 John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
God's love for us fuels our love for him, which is expressed in our love for one another. They're all tangled up together. If we want to love better each other, if we want less wasted motion in our lives, then we must consider how we grow in our love for God and our experience of his love for us. That's what fuels the way we love one another. So let me close, step out of this passage and close today with four wells that I want to commend for you to drink from on an almost daily basis that will allow you to experience the love of God in transforming ways, I think. I want you to listen closely because when I'm done with this, I want you to be able to answer the question, which well do I need to be going to on a daily basis? Which one of these is lacking? So I want you to be very prayerful and sensitive to what God might say to you as we walk briefly through these four wells that contain the love of God for us or convey it to us. The first well is the well of community. Community found in the body of Christ in the church. In 1 John 4, again, it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The love of God is best experienced in the community that's called the church. Because guess what? You go to one of our small groups. It's a room full of people who are desperately looking to obey this command. They are looking for someone to afflict with the love of God. That's why they're there. Okay? They are trying to find some way to be obedient to Christ. This is the great command. Love God, love neighbor. They're trying to do it. So you should go there and help them out. Let them love on you. Biblical community within the church is the best place on earth to experience the love of God. I got this um, email this week from a family that's going through a time of suffering uh, in their family. This is, what, this is what they wrote. He says, you are the pastor of an incredible church body. We have felt and seen the love of Christ through his followers like never before over the past week. We are so grateful to be a part of Northway. The church has taken the sermons from the past several weeks to heart and have served us beautifully. Thank you for leading our church to serve the body the way they do. We are praying we will serve as generously as they have served us as needs arise. You can experience that in the body. You have to come all the way in. You don't get it on the peripheral. But let's be honest, that kind of community takes time. And we don't like to give time. We like shortcuts. While she was a college student, Heidi Newmark took a year off from prestigious Brown University to become part of a volunteer program sponsored by a group called Rural Mission. She was sent to Johns Island, which is just off the Carolina coast, where she learned from the sons and daughters of plantation slaves who allowed her to listen in as they sat around telling stories. In her words, the most important lesson I learned on Johns Island was from Miss Ellie. She lived miles down a small dirt road in a one-room wooden home. She says, I love to visit her. 
We'd sit in old rocking chairs on the front porch, drinking tall glasses of sweet tea while she'd tell me stories punctuated with gullah expressions that would leap from her river of thought like a bright silver fish. Girl, I'd be so happy I could jump the sky, she'd say. I never could find out Miss Ellie's precise age, she writes, but it was somewhere between 90 and 100. Maybe she didn't even know herself. She still chopped her own firewood, stacked in neat little piles behind the house. Now, Miss Ellie had a friend named Netta, whom she'd known since they were small girls, and in order to get to Netta's house, Miss Ellie had to walk for miles through fields of tall grass. This was a sweet grass that Sea Island women make famous baskets out of, but it was also home to numerous poisonous snakes. Actually, Netta's home was not that far from Miss Ellie's place, but there was a stream that cut across the fields, and you had to walk quite a distance to get to a place where it narrowed enough to pass. She says, I admired Miss Ellie, who had set off to visit her friend full of bouncy enthusiasm with no worry for the snakes or the long miles. I also felt sorry for her. Poor Miss Ellie, I thought, old and arthritic, having to walk all that way, pushing through the thick summer heat, not to mention the snakes. She said, I felt sorry until I hit on the perfect plan. I arranged with some men to help build a simple plank bridge across the stream near Miss Ellie's house. I scouted out the ideal place, not too wide, but still too deep for her to cross. I bought and helped carry the planks there myself. Our bridge was built in a day. I was so excited that I could hardly wait to see Miss Ellie's reaction. I went to her house where she wanted to sit in her rocker and tell stories, but I was too impatient about my project. I practically dragged her off with me. Look, I shouted, it's a shortcut for you to visit Netta. Miss Ellie's face did not register the grateful, happy look I expected. There was no smile, no jumping the sky. Instead, for a long time, she looked puzzled. Then she shook her head and looked at me as though I were the one who needed pity. Child, she said, I don't need a shortcut. And then she told me about all the friends she kept with her up with on her way to visit Netta. A shortcut would cut her off from Mr. Jenkins, with whom she always swapped gossip. From Miss Hunter, who so looked forward to the quilt scraps she'd bring by. From the raisin wine she'd taste at one place in exchange for her biscuits and the chance to look in on the old folks who were sick. (laughs) Child, she said again, you can't take shortcuts if you want friends in this world. Shortcuts don't mix with love. Maybe it's time for some of you to stop taking shortcuts in the church. Coming in, coming out, fast as you can. Maybe it's time for you to come on all the way in and experience and taste the love of God for you that's here in the community of our church, maybe in one of our small groups. That's why they exist. First well, community. Second well, if you'll drink from this well daily, you will experience the love of God in a profound way, even though it won't sound like it at first. The second well is confession. Sin breaks relationship. It distances you from the ones you love. This is a basic principle of all relationships. Uh, We were out for dinner the other night with some good friends just talking and... um, I shared a story of a small altercation that happened in my home. And uh, 
and as, as good friends are wont to do and as they ought to do, uh, they asked me, so what did you learn from this altercation that happened in your home? And uh, it, was a, uh, it was an unintentional and um, innocent but ill-conceived remark that actually had my wife not, she not only left the room, she left the house. And I knew, being the intuitive husband that I was, um, that something, I, I had done something wrong. That's the first thing I learned. Um, I was wrong. I didn't know exactly how, but I knew I was wrong. See, I, I know enough to know that I'm a great sinner, and I was wrong. I'm always wrong. The second thing I knew is that I needed to pursue her. Reconciliation does not happen without pursuit. It's my job to pursue. I was wrong. I needed to pursue. And so sheepishly, a few minutes later, I asked one of my kids, is she still outside? And she had found her way back in the house, and so I tracked her down, and, you know, the I was stupid, I'm so sorry conversation happened. Wise confession comes quickly. And the third thing that I learned from all this is because I married a good woman, confession leads to reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. See, sin, sin functions that way with our relationship with God, too. Confession is the means whereby we own our sin and turn back towards God. Confession is the means whereby we experience reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. And it needs to be daily because we are great sinners and we sin against God every day. And in confession, because we serve a good God, Confession leads to reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. This is why I think Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, our sins. Those two things are bumped up against each other as though to tell us you don't just need daily bread, you need daily forgiveness. Because we sin daily. It is a fantastic way to end your day to just prayerfully think back over your day and confess any sins that God brings to mind. Confess them so that the relationship might be restored because in the confessing, you will experience the love of God for you because it leads to reconciliation and forgiveness and love. In confession, we receive, we drink from the well of the love of God for us Is that a regular part of your day? It should be. It can be. Community, confession, thankfulness. It's another one of those acts of remembrance where we take time to look back on our day and see the hidden goodness of God to us throughout the day. And it's everywhere. You see it in family, in a good friend, a sunset, a good meal, duct tape that held, indoor plumbing. It's everywhere, okay? The goodness of God is everywhere. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, the psalmist exhorts us. But that goodness is often hidden to us. We are blind to it. And we must train our eyes to see it by means of thankfulness. 
Henry Ward Beecher said, If one should give me a dish of sand and tell me there were particles of iron in it, I might look for them with my eyes and search for them with my clumsy fingers and be unable to detect them. But let me take a magnet and sweep through it, and now would it draw to itself the almost invisible particles by the mere power of attraction. He says, the unthankful heart, like my finger in the sand, discovers no mercies. But let the thankful heart sweep through the day, and as the magnet finds the iron, so it will find in every hour some heavenly blessing. Again, this is a happy discipline to authentically embrace at mealtime, I mean to authentically embrace it, or at the end of your day, just think back on your day and give thanks. To give thanks for the goodness and love of God for you, especially for the cross. Especially for the cross. Because in Romans, Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the great demonstration of the love of God. And too many days go by without our giving thanks for the supreme act of love, the redemptive work of Christ on the cross in our place. So community and confession and thanksgiving are all wells that we can drink from the love of God from that they have the potential to fuel us in our love for one another. The last one is pursuit. The pursuit of God in His Word, the Bible. Too many of you do not read your Bible. You just don't read it. Um, And let's be honest. Even though preeminent amongst the strengths of our church is my preaching, okay? You see it right there on the marker board that shall never be erased. Um, It's not that good, okay? It doesn't last a week. You can't run a week on a sermon, not mine, okay? I'd be in the Word this afternoon if I was you. Um, Too many of you don't read your Bibles, you got half a dozen of them. You don't read them. What in the world? And then when you read them, you, you read them like you're still in college and you've got an assigned number of pages you have to machine through so you can tell the prof, read it. Okay? That's not the goal. The goal is God. You find God in this book. You meet God here. You see him. You, you hear him acting in history and in your life, in this book. You're after God here. So when you read the Bible, before you read, you pray, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. And you read in light of the big picture. And the the Bible, in one sense, it's a giant love story of a relationship lovingly created and then tragically broken and long pursued and then reconciled at great cost by the greatest act of love, which we're now sharing with all those who are still estranged. 
Read it with an eye for the character and the attributes of God, especially his mercy and his kindness and love towards the likes of us. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's on almost every page. This takes time. You cannot rush it. Will you take time to drink from this well of the love of God for you that's in this book called the Bible? You need to do it daily. We must. We really must. Because without these kinds of things, without love, it's all wasted motion. All of it. And we love each other because he first loved us. Wes Selinger writes, I have spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world, and the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first, a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his, and everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Then he says, everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is all about. Because without love, it's all wasted motion. How would God have you reclaim the motion of your days with love? Which well must you drink of the love of God from? such that you will love as he has loved you first. Let's pray together, okay? God, have mercy on us. We are so vain and clueless that we think this message is for someone else. And yet, surely it is not. With remarkably persistent pride and self-absorption, we go through our days and use people rather than love them, even the ones that matter most to us. And so we confess that, we admit that, we acknowledge that, and we ask for for help, for for mercy to become more uh, loving, tomorrow than we were last week. To get it more, the radical nature of your love for us so that we will pass it on. We will love because you have first loved us. And so Lord, I pray for radical obedience to your prompting now and this week as we have the opportunity to love instead of just wasting our motion. We ask this now in the name of Christ. Amen.